New beginnings are fresh and exciting, aren't they? Think about the first time you started the job that you went to school for. Maybe you got your own office and you walked in and you thought, I have so much opportunity to learn and to grow here. Maybe you're a teacher and you showed up at school the first time and you think, I have all these students to work with, all these students to see how I can mold them and shape their minds. You're a construction worker and each new job site is an opportunity to build something or to fix something. Maybe you think about the first home that you've bought. You remember that moment where you walk in, maybe you're a young adult and you rented that first condo and you think, freedom from mom and dad. And it's exciting. Or you're a new Canadian and you arrive in Canada and you think, this is a great place. I can't wait to see what God has in store for me here. Or you built your own house and you get to pick the cabinets and the colors and all that goes with that. You remember the first time you really had a big crush on somebody? And you kind of started flirting with one another and you said, hey, do you like stuff? And the other person said, I like stuff. Do you like the same stuff? And it was so beautiful and romantic. And suddenly you get married and a baby shows up and you think, this is wonderful. And then the crap hits. And I mean like the literal crap hits. And your baby has a blow up up their back. And you think, oh, this is just awful. And you think, I don't know how tightly I need to put that diaper on, and stuff still happens. I remember yelling at my wife, Jenna, how much do these onesies cost? And she said, $4. And I said, it's worth it. And we threw it away. That's funny. Over the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple people in our church family pass away. And we think, man, relationships are hard. And we have that loss, and we go, God, what are we supposed to do now? when dad passes away, when grandpa passes away, when my spouse passes away. Or you think about this brand new building that you get to live in and you have uh, your uh, first house for the first time and that Epcor bill shows up and you say, wait, the city is charging me for water rain off? That doesn't sound right. Why didn't the realtor tell me that uh, window was leaking? How much are condo fees? Or you show up at work and you go, man, I'm so glad that I left that old place and I look forward to the new place and there's still problems there. What do we do when difficulties hit? What do we do when problems come our way? What do we do when things don't work out the way we expect them to? The Israelites are about to have a brand new beginning and things are not working out the way they expect them to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family. And first thing I pray is that you would help my voice to get through another service um, and that I'd be able to talk the whole 30 minutes. God, we pray that we would see this story that's 3,500 years old and how it relates to us this very day. God, we pray that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up. And as we look at these three interesting points that by the power of your spirit, you would say to each one of us what you want us to hear. We pray all these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. If you're in the room, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Of course, you can always download something to your uh, smartphone or your tablet. If you're watching at home, hopefully you have a phone or a Bible nearby for you to follow as well. If you're brand new to church and you're in the building or you're watching from home, thank you for joining us. Exodus is really easy to find. It's the second book of the Bible. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. Really quick as you're flipping there, here's the story so far. 
The Israelites find themselves under captivity in Egypt and they cry out to God for help. God, send us someone to rescue us. Send us a savior because we can't handle being under this slavery anymore. And so God raises up a man by the name of Moses. Moses comes on behalf of God and he brings um, with him nine plagues onto Israel, a tenth, uh, pardon me, onto Egypt, a tenth plague onto Egypt that causes Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to send God's people out. Last week, Pastor Joel walked us through the crossing of the Red Sea. And there's all of this celebration. The Israelites have finally escaped from the people of Egypt and they're wondering what's going to happen next. And we arrive at some real difficult challenges. Over the next three chapters, we're going to see the Israelites say, there's no water for us to drink. God, there's no food. How are you gonna feed two million of us on a daily basis? God, what do we do when an enemy attacks? What do we do when we don't have the systems and structures in place to make sure that we can handle this? I'm gonna boil it down to three different problems. The first is this, it's a food problem. This is chapter 15, 22 to 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Merah, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now it's easy to sit in a temperature controlled room. Maybe you're at home right now. You got a cup of coffee in hand. You put your feet up and you think, what a bunch of whiners. Don't they see how God has provided for them over and over again? The Passover was less than two weeks ago. They crossed the Red Sea three days ago. Don't they remember these walls of water? God obviously can do something there. Don't they remember the first miracle where God took water and turned it into blood? Don't they have any faith? But that might be a little bit intellectually dishonest. Take another look at that first verse and you'll see it says, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. I regularly go on walks. I walk my dog. I walk with my friends. After 20 minutes, I'm starting to get thirsty. Now I'm guessing they had some water with them, but even so, they would have been three days in and thought to themselves, God, we're in the desert. Provide us with some water. Moses, you're God's representative. What are you gonna do about this? 25 to 26. Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer. These opening five verses set the scene for the next three chapters. So let's unpack what's going on here. The Israelites start grumbling and you would expect God to come in maybe a little bit hot, maybe a little bit angry saying, come on, Israel, have you not seen what I've done for you all this time? But he doesn't. He responds incredibly graciously. And I find this amazing. I have three elementary kids and for the most part, they are really well behaved. But occasionally they'll come downstairs or they'll come inside from playing outside and they'll say, dad, get us something to eat. And so I put on a nice apron. I make them some rice pilaf, perhaps a beef wellington. No, I don't. I say, if you want something to eat, maybe you could try talking to me a little bit nicer. And they say, sorry, dad, can we have something to eat? At the end of chapter 15, the Israelites grumble because they have no water. At the beginning of chapter 16, they grumble because they have no food. At the beginning of 17, they have no water again, and they grumble some more. Three stories, a whopping 10 times, we hear the word grumble. Some of your translations might say murmur. So how does God respond? 
He responds by testing them. In chapter 15, he says, I'm going to test you. You can look ahead. We're going to read chapter 16 right away. In 16 verse 4, he says, this is how I'm going to test them. Will you listen to me? Will you trust me when things get difficult? Will you believe in me when things are really easy? In chapter 17, they test God a third time. Each step of the way, a grumble and a test, a grumble and a test, a grumble and a test. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. They set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, would that we have died in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Least there we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might test them. There's that word, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now listen carefully, because this is incredibly important. The problem isn't that they're complaining. The problem is the type of complaining. When we read the book of Psalms, we have these prayers set out to God where the people are pouring their hearts out to God, saying, here's the challenges that I'm currently facing. It's relational. There's an army chasing me down. I don't know what to do. I'm currently reading the book of Job, and over and over again, Job is saying, God, why are you doing this to me? We have the prophets at the end of the Old Testament who are constantly crying out to God and saying, how long, O Lord, must I cry out to you? And you do not help, that you do not listen. And so you have the Psalms, you have Job, you have the prophets, you have Jesus himself um, on the night that he's betrayed, all crying out to God. They're crying to God. The grumbling, some of your translations might say murmuring, is a special type of complaining. It means that they're grumbling, they're complaining behind the leader's back. This is a group of co-workers who are ticked off at their boss. They don't ever talk to their boss about what they're ticked off about. They're just a group of people who are angry. We're not being compensated fairly. Does he not understand our working conditions? Does he have any idea the pressure that he's putting on us? Does he know how long we're working each day and we don't see our family at home? And the reason this is so important is because they're creating this uprising and God says, no, 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 no. That's not how this is going to work. I, the Lord, your God, have redeemed you. I have rescued you from slavery. I've performed miracle after miracle, most recently walking through the Red Sea. And I'm going to take care of this food problem. But he also wants to see, are you going to uphold your side of the bargain? Now you hear the word test. And you might be thinking of a number of different things. Some of you might be thinking, well, God already knows our hearts. Why does he need to test us? Others of you might be thinking, well, is this a pass-fail sort of thing? And if we fail, we're totally out. Or maybe you think, man, I know I'm not going to pass that test. Is there any chance that God is going to continue allow me to be in his place? God actually tells us what this testing is about. We jump ahead to chapter 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you 
that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. In other words, the test is nothing for God. The test is for us. He wants to know, how are you going to respond when you are tested, when you face difficulties, when you face problems and challenges? To put it into an illustration, imagine this, and for some of you, it's not that hard to imagine. You fall down on these icy sidewalks, and you wake up the next day, and you're like, man, my arm hurts. And so you go, and you talk to a doctor, and the doctor says, we're going to perform a test. Go have an x-ray. And it's not a pass-fail episode. The x-ray is going to tell you what it is you need to do. Your arm is fine. Don't worry about it. It'll be okay in a couple days. You might need to go to physio, and that's going to take a couple weeks to figure out, or you might need a cast. The test is there to help you. Jumping down to verses 13 to 16. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. In the morning, dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? The word, what is it, translates manna. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So God has upheld his side of the bargain. Here you go, Israel. Here is food every day. How are you going to respond? Are you going to listen to the commands I've set out for you? Or are you going to completely ignore them? Jumping down to verse 22. This is a larger passage to verse 30. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside and keep it till morning. So they lay it aside till morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it like there were previously. Moses said, for eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, which is a Sabbath, there won't be any. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So the Israelites go out day after day and they think, okay, God's given me this food, this manna, and I get to collect it. And they do that the first day, and they do that the second day, and they do that the fourth, and finally the fifth day. And they think, this is normal. We get how this works. Every day we wake up and we collect the food. And God says, no, are you going to listen? Because on the sixth day, I want you to collect twice as much. And on the seventh, I don't want you to collect any. I will provide for you. Will you trust me? Do you believe that I will continue to provide for you even when there is no food on that day that I will give you twice as much the day before? Now, to be fair, most of the Israelites did trust God and they did rest on the seventh day. Now, you might be thinking, Dave, what on earth does this have to do with me? This story is three and a half millennia old. I was working through the outline of the message earlier in the week and I'm calling it food problems and passage problems and judgment problems. But I debated, do I call it an inner struggle, an outer struggle, and relational struggles? And I chose not to. I wanted to focus on food because most of you, like me, have gone to grocery stores and you've got a little bit of a sticker shock. This past week, my wife asked me to pick up some lettuce and I called her from the grocery store and I said, do you want to know how much it is? Then you walk over to the deli counter and you pick up the ground beef and you go, how much has that jumped up? And praise God that in all the inflation, my Ben and Jerry's is still $5 a pint or else I would be just overdone. 
Do you trust God that he's gonna provide your daily bread? A year ago, we probably didn't have to have this conversation. Do you believe in the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread? Do you trust that he will continue to provide in the midst of this difficulty? That he will provide you with food? He'll provide you with shelter? That he'll provide you with clothing? That he'll provide you with transportation? Now that doesn't mean there won't be challenges. That doesn't mean life won't be difficult. That doesn't mean we'll get it just like it was pre-COVID where we had more expendable income than many of us probably have today. One of my friends sold his really nice house. It was worth about $600,000 and he moved to a a different part of the community where the house there was about $400,000. He had to make that decision to downgrade and he said, but Dave, now I have financial freedom. The test God is placing before the Israelites is the same test he's placing before us. Will you trust me in the midst of difficulties? In the story of redemption, God has rescued Israel from slavery. He's rescuing us now from ourselves. Don't depend only on what you're capable of doing. Do you depend on God? For there will be challenges. There are going to be difficulties. We are going to face problems. Will you trust God in the midst of these difficulties? Israel has no choice but to trust God. Where else are two million people going to get food every day? So they settle into this routine where they grab food for five days of the week. They grab a double portion on the sixth day. They rest on the seventh and a new normal sets in. But then a second problem comes their way. It's a passage problem. This is chapter 17, verses eight to 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went on top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this down in a memorial, in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar, called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We don't know why um, the Amalekites decided to fight the Israelites. The commentators just throw out some random guesses that there's perhaps some, um, a land issue going on. The, uh, the Amalekites don't like the fact that this horde of Israelites are showing up and they're taking their water and their land. They might be protecting some wells or it might be an age-old tension. For those of you not familiar with uh, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, we're introduced to the three patriarchs of Israel. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the father of the nation of Israel. Esau, you want to guess who he's the father of? The Amalekites. But something else is going on. We always say Jacob and Esau, but it's a little bit backwards because Jacob, Jacob, (laughs) Jacob is the second born son. Means he should get significantly less than his brother. But when it comes for his dad to give him the blessing, he gives the significant overwhelming aspect of the blessing to Jacob and barely gives Esau anything. And so immediately there is this tension here between these two brothers that goes down for generations and generations. What does that mean? The battle between Israel and Amalek gives us a physical picture of a spiritual reality. 
Israel has been rescued from slavery. They are part of God's chosen people. They have been saved from their previous way of life. It's the story of redemption. But their past isn't completely gone. Their past still affects them. We have been rescued from slavery. We are part of God's chosen people. We have been saved for a brand new way of life. But our previous battles still haven't disappeared. We still wrestle with pornography. We are addicted to gambling, to alcohol, to video games, to online streaming. Our temper gets the best of us. We sleep with people we're not married to. We talk behind people's backs. We trust in money, not in God. Have I hit you yet? We idolize our family. We lie so people like us more. We hide behind our clothes, our house, our car. We compare ourselves to others. We refuse to give or serve to the church. That's someone else's problem. We're not kind to our neighbors. In short, we have a passage problem. And yet most of us in this room have committed to following Jesus as our king, but we don't become perfect overnight. The challenges that we faced before coming a Christian still exist today. Remember from where the Israelites have come from over the last three weeks. Three weeks ago, we learned that there was nine plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt, obviously from God. Two weeks ago, we talked about the 10th plague and this incredible Passover story. Last week, Pastor Joel stood up and talked with us about the Israelites actually escaping from Egypt and going through the Red Sea. Salvation comes from God and from God alone, and it's incredibly obvious. And a shift is taking place. And the shift that's taking place is that Israel doesn't fight apart from God, but with God's reliance upon him. And God is saying to the people of Israel, are you willing to do some of the fighting yourselves? God could have wiped the Amalekites out just like he wiped out Pharaoh in the army of Egypt, but he doesn't. He wants the nation of Israel to recognize part of this fighting you're gonna have to do too. Take another look at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. This is an encouragement to the nation of Israel and also a reminder of the total dependence that they have upon God. Another physical picture of a spiritual reality. When Moses remained in a posture of prayer, they're winning. When Moses can't do it anymore and just becomes fatigued, they start to lose. Now this passage problem and the food problem seem different on the outset. And certainly there are differences, but that big idea still remains. Will you trust in God in times of difficulty? Will you trust God to provide you with your basic needs? Will you trust with God to work with you through recurring sin problems when they feel overwhelming? When we face those same tests time and time again. When the theme of trusting God remains, it is not identical. Throughout the food problem, Moses more or less stands alone. And you'll notice here in the passage problem, we have Aaron, Joshua, and her at place. And as we come to our third story, this idea of a judgment problem, we'll see it takes the whole community. As we arrive at the beginning of chapter 18, we're not gonna read the first 12 verses, but we're reminded, oh yeah, Moses is married throughout this whole time. And so Moses' father-in-law, along with his wife, his kids come together, and there, you can see this intimate relationship between Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. The repetition of the idea of father-in-law comes up, I believe, eight times. And over and over again, you see that these two men deeply care for one another. Our very first sermon on Exodus talks about how Jethro welcomed Moses into his home set him up with one of his daughters and allowed him to farm his land. With this deep value they have for one another sets the background for the verses that follow. This is 13 to 23. 
The next day, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for all the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for this thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, Look for able men from whom all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. Any small matter, they can decide themselves. So it'll be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. The story offers practical wisdom and leadership advice that has been used over the last number of centuries. Moses has learned delegation and management organization that many of us simply take for granted. We look at our mayor, Mayor Sohi, and we think, of course he has 12 counselors. He needs to understand what's happening in the different wards in our city. We look at a large company and we see a CEO and we know, of, of course, he has multiple vice presidents who report to him. How do you think he understands what's taking place? You look at the church and uh, I'm privileged to be the lead pastor, but we have 20 amazing staff that do great work. And all of you who are team members in different ways, shapes and forms who make the ministry happen, you need to depend on one another. But as much as I love leadership, that's not what I want to focus on right now. I think there's one verse that kind of unlocks this entire chapter. Jethro, rather flabbergasted at the personal responsibility, looks at his son-in-law and says, Moses, what are you doing? Moses responds in verse 15. Well, the people come to me to inquire of God. Now, time doesn't permit for me to go into this as deeply as I would like, but I mean, I'm going to spend a minute or two on this. The Western world has a broken understanding of community. And the problem is made only worse as our culture leans more and more towards the glorification of the individual. How many times do you hear phrases like, well, that's your truth, but that's not my truth. The reality that many of us enter our homes after work and we have no idea who our neighbors are, let alone have seen them. I have a neighbor who is three doors down from me. I live in a cul-de-sac. They've lived there for 16 months. This past week when they were shoveling was the first time I've ever seen them in my life. We have our own phones, our own laptops, our own rooms. We make our own decisions because why on earth should anyone tell us what to do? You work from home, you watch church from home, you invest from home, you have personal algorithms that happen for your social media, for the streaming services, and for Google itself. And we wonder why we have delayed adolescence mental health issues, and why people are making terrible decisions all the time. We have a judgment problem. I skipped a verse earlier in this passage that I want to come back to. At first, it looks like a throwaway verse. You might have thought, oh, maybe that's why Dave didn't read it. Back at the end of chapter 15, we read this in verse 27. When they come to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamp there by the water, why is that important? Why would Moses have written that down? In the Old Testament, 
12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, the 12 apostles. In the Old Testament, 70 elders of Israel. In the New Testament, 70 is the number of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish legal body as well. And you'll read this in the Gospel of John, the number of disciples that kind of fill out the 12 apostles. God saves us. We have seen this over and over again throughout the story of Exodus. It's the reason we titled this sermon series, Redemption. We are saved by God alone. But on the journey towards the promised land, God surrounds us with people of wisdom, of character, of love, and of insight. When we face difficulty, do you trust that God has placed people in your life to walk with you through that? My friends, I am rarely the smartest person in the room. And that's not some sort of self-deprecating joke, that's real. The predecessors, if you've been here for a long time, you're aware of uh, how academic they are. I'm not an academic. But the blessing of recognizing I'm not the smartest person in the room is that I surround myself with men and women who are much smarter than I am. And it might be something simple like, hey, I'm gonna build a deck and I have three friends come over and they say, hey, here's a couple different ways you can do that. One friend actually came over every single night for a week to help me build that deck. When I purchased my house, it was a little bit above my pay grade. So I talked to five people in our church. I said, here's my salary, here's what I make. Here's what I have saved up. Here's what the house costs. Am I making a wise decision or is this foolish? When I think about what happens at the board level, I'm so grateful for the people in that room who make wise decisions with me. The best ideas that come out of this uh, church aren't mine. They're almost always our staff or people who are sitting in these pews. We recognize that we ha must have this total dependence upon Jesus. This total dependence that Jesus has surrounded us with men and women who are wise and offer good counsel. So when we think about the problems that we face along life's journey, the difficulties and the challenges, don't worry about all three of them right now, but focus on one. Where do you need to grow? When you think about a food problem, do you trust that God will provide for you? I'm sure there's at least some people in this room who are wondering, I don't know how I'm gonna pay my rent and my mortgage and put food on the table. Do you trust that God will provide for you? Do you trust that he will give you food, clothing, shelter, and transportation? I was talking with somebody about this just a week or two ago. If we trust God for our salvation, surely we can trust him to put food on the table as well. What about a passage problem? Is there an issue that you're working through right now? Maybe it's a character issue. Maybe your spouse has brought something up, a coworker, a good friend, and said, look, you really need to work on this and you know that you have an addiction that you just can't overcome. You recognize, why do I keep losing jobs when everybody else seems to be able to find theirs and keep theirs? Is there somebody that God has placed in your life that you can walk with and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this, and I would love for you to walk with me? Is it a judgment problem? This isn't about morality. This is about being surrounded by great Christian community and saying, hey, I'm wrestling through whether or not I should buy a piece of property. I don't know if this car might be stretching myself too thin. Maybe I should buy kind of an old clunker. Is this person that I'm dating right now, do you think this is the right person for my life? Or do you think I'm making a mistake? We rarely engage Christian community the way we should. Do we want to be engaged with the community of Jesus? 
Jesus is intimately involved in all three of these. We hear about manna coming down from heaven and we think, wow, the Israelites traveled throughout the desert into the promised land for 40 years and every single day God provided them with manna and we go, that's incredible. Tiny side note, there's only two miracles that are found in each of the four gospels. Do you know what they are? One, it's almost so obvious you overlook it. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. The second is the feeding of the 5,000. Why is this story so important? These the people who have been fed by Jesus come chasing after him the next day and say, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Savior, surely that you will provide for us daily just like God did for the Israelites 1,500 years ago. Jesus responds in John chapter six, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. Come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. But what about, what about a passage problem, Jesus? What are we supposed to do? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathers together with his disciples. And he says, I'm going away and you cannot follow me. And you can't blame Thomas for asking, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we find the way? Many of you know what comes next. Jesus looks at Thomas, looks at his disciples and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the ultimate passage that even though when we fall short, Jesus stands in our place and makes sure that the God, our heavenly Father sees us as holy and perfect. Sticking with the gospel of John, what about that judgment problem? And Jesus says, I will send you my Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world of, uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgments in each of the four gospels and with a different version of the Great Commission where Jesus looks at his 12 disciples and says, you go out and tell the whole world about me, teaching them to obey my commandments. 2,000 years later, that number has swollen from 12 to approximately 2 billion people, hundreds of whom are sitting in the auditorium now and in first service and online. Do you trust Jesus? That he will walk with you through your difficulties and the challenges that have come your way? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Exodus. And this passage here might not have the big flashy miracles that the other ones do that we looked at earlier, but it's no, no less powerful. And so God, we ask that you would forgive us when we don't rely on you, but rather rely on our own strength. We ask that you would forgive us when we try to do things ourselves and make a mess of it. We ask that you would forgive us when we work as an island and don't depend on the Christian community that you've surrounded us with. God, we ask instead that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would believe in your provision, that we would believe that you are the one who provides for us, that you are the one who surrounds us, that you are the one who works in our lives, that we might become more and more like you each day, and that you would surround us with strong Christian community to help us make wise decisions that bring you glory. Lord, thank you for saving us and for this story of redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.